Welcome virtual entrepreneurs, millennials on the go, and adventure seekers with big dreams. You found the right place. My name is Alexis Teichmiller, a millennial, lifestyle blogger, and digital creative. The Laptop Lifestyle is designed to inspire, educate, and challenge you to live the life you want every day. Together, let's unlock how to live the laptop lifestyle to the fullest. Does your effort and actions match your vision and ambition? It's an interesting question because I think we all have dreams and goals, but sometimes our effort and our actions don't really match up with those. And it's actually a really interesting topic that Nathan Barry and I dig into in today's episode. You may be asking yourself, who is Nathan Barry? And I'm about to tell you. Nathan is the founder and CEO of ConvertKit, an email marketing tool for creators. And ConvertKit is also where I get to call home. It is my job. And I'm the affiliate manager there at ConvertKit. And I've had the absolute honor of working alongside Nathan and my team over the last year. Before ConvertKit's growth really took off, Nathan worked on building iPhone applications, writing books, and coding websites. Nathan got his start as a web and software designer, but soon became obsessed with the world of audience building and book publishing. During that time, he actually wrote three books and built two courses. But in October of 2014, Nathan made the decision to walk away from the book and training business to focus full-time on ConvertKit. And at the time, they had just hit $1,000 a month in revenue. And right now, as I'm recording this intro, we are now at $770,000 in monthly reoccurring revenue, which is crazy to think of the growth that we've had over the last three years. Since then, we've grown and we have an amazing team, product, and customers. And I feel honored to be a part of a team at ConvertKit. But even more so to have this conversation, this really meaningful, intentional conversation with Nathan about his growth as a young CEO, some of the fears that he's faced. And over the past year, I've learned so much from Nathan. And in this episode, we really dive into some big topics like the importance of asking why and questioning the quote unquote normal ways of doing things, the true gift of a side hustle the inside look of how Nathan wrote three books in two years, how working in public, creating every day, and teaching everything you know are key parts to entrepreneurship. Knowing when to shut down or double down, I love this conversation we have about that, and also how to tap into vulnerability and use it as a way to overcome fear and connect with others. Again, this conversation with Nathan is probably just so special to me because he is someone I've looked up to for the last year, but it is also one filled with so much vulnerability and honesty, and I cannot wait for you guys to listen. If you resonate with this episode, please share it with your friends or leave me a review on iTunes. I would love to hear from you guys. Also, hit me up on Instagram. I'm always there responding to your guys' comments and your direct messages. All right, guys, let's dive into today's episode with Nathan Barry. Hey, hey, Laptop Lifestylers. It is your host, Alexis Teichmiller here. And today I have an extremely special guest. His name is Nathan Barry, and he is actually the CEO of ConvertKit, which is where I work. So it's Nathan's my boss. And I feel honored that he has taken the time to come on my podcast. And we are really going to dive into his entrepreneurial journey, how he overcomes his fears, and how he's found confidence at a young age. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I I love whenever I asked you a couple of weeks ago, you're like, it only took you a year to ask me. I, I think I said 54 weeks, but you know. Just, yeah, just to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know a, a great deal about you and kind of got to know you over the last year, year and a half, but I'd love for you to share how you got started being a creator, being a designer. Yeah. So let's see. Design started for me back in, I guess it started like the beginning of high school. Um, I was dating this girl in you know, this awkward high school relationship that I don't know, I was probably like 14 at the time. I don't know. Um, and she was into building websites and she would do it with, uh, you know, for those of you who are around in the geocities days, uh, with like terrible 
code snippets copied and pasted and put on hosted on these few websites. Um, she was into that and I thought that was super cool. Um, and so I kind of got into that more, um, got some books from the library about it and like, I just started learning HTML and CSS. And then somewhere along there, I convinced my parents to buy me a copy of Photoshop elements, which was like the, you know, 50 or a hundred dollar version of Photoshop instead of the, I don't know, it was like 600 or $800 back in the day. It was crazy expensive. Um, but then I just started learning more, more of those things. I th- I think the first paid gig that I ever had was I got paid $75 to design the logo for the Idaho Chess Association. Uh, and then I got paid 150 maybe. No, I think I paid $200 to then design their website. Um, and if you want a little piece of Nathan Berry internet history, IdahoChessAssociation.org, still up and running. Um so uh, that's incredible. I love it. That's a thing. The Idaho Chess Association. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then it just kind of grew from there, right? So it was learning a lot more code, learning more design, and then gradually getting paid more and more as a freelancer um, to do that. Um, then I spent some time. I joined a software company in 2009. Um, so I was 19 then. Um Hold on really quick. I feel like I feel like we skipped something. Didn't you graduate high school early and then go to college early? I did. So I did everything young in life. And so that's why like half the people at ConvertKit are older than I am. Um but uh I uh I was homeschooled and somewhere about this time that I was, I don't know, maybe fourteen or so, I realized that since all of my friends were older than I was. Uh, they were all going to graduate high school well before I was, you know, like two years before and they were going to all be off at college and I was going to be like stuck still doing high school at home. And that didn't sound fun. Um, and so, you know, then I, when I talked to my parents and said, okay, is this high school thing? Is this, uh, is this a set number of years or is this a set amount of work? And thankfully my parents were like, oh no, no, it's a set amount of work. Like if you get it done faster, that's. That's cool. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to need that checklist written out. And uh, (laughs) they did that. And so I remember spending like a road trip uh, from Boise, Idaho over to Seattle, Washington, as we would often do to visit family. Um, And I would do like, you know, a month's worth of math lessons in that road trip because I had like my older siblings were there. My mom was there. And so I could just, whatever questions I had, I could just do. And my theory was basically, okay, on this eight hour drive to Seattle, I'm bored. And so I'm also bored when I'm doing algebra. So why not just combine the two? And, uh, and I was actually more entertained while doing algebra than like just, you know, in a car drive. And so I, once, once I had it laid out in front of me as, as like a checklist and not as a, Hey, this will take you four years or three years. Um, then I just got it all done. And, um, you know, worked on it through the summer. Uh, and so I was able to graduate. I was 15, um, I graduated 15 and a half, I guess. And, uh, then started going to Boise state started out, uh, first for a graphic design degree. Cause I wanted to like, that was the closest thing I could find to all this like web design and interface design stuff that I was obsessed with. Um, but then later there was a little too much, uh, too much art involved in that. And so, uh, I later switched to marketing and then after like the freelance gigs picked up more and more, I realized that I was at college to learn, like to acquire skills to help me make money. And, uh, you know, I was already earning money from the freelance stuff and I realized that I was going to be able to do that. Um, and so then I, uh, dropped out of college. So my, my claim to fame from, you know, <laughs> those early days is I dropped out of college at 17, which is before most people drop out of high school. Right. <laughs> so. Something uh, something I've always really enjoyed, anytime you tell your story, it's like you came to these, these moments of unconventional thinking, of you saw a path and you didn't necessarily go down the path that everybody else went down. What do you think attributes to the way you make decisions like that? Well, I think a lot of, I mean, the foundation that, that came up was... Uh, you know, through being homeschooled and, and not going through that conventional path. So that definitely, 
uh, gave me a huge advantage. And I just remember all kinds of things throughout life of like just really questioning them. Like one, my parents never talked to me like a kid. You know, if you've ever heard someone talk to like that two-year-old and they're using baby talk to do it, you know, my parents never did that. And they just always expected that we would uh, contribute and participate in conversations um, just like anyone else. And so age was never a factor. And I remember a time, I think we were at Target or something, and I was super shy as a kid. And so I went up to, you know, I wanted to know where something was. I probably, I probably wanted to know where the Legos were. Um, and so my mom was like, well, there's someone who works here. Why don't you ask them? And so I like work up the courage to go and ask this Target store employee where, you know, where the Legos are. And uh, he like bends all the way down to get down on my level because I'm probably like eight at this time. And, uh, you know, and then like in the most like patronizing kid voice ever, it's just like, oh, well, they're right over it, you know? And, and I remember walking away from that and going like, mom, why did he talk to me like that? And she was just explaining like, well, some people feel the need to talk to kids in that way. And it was such a foreign experience that anyone would treat me differently, um, based on age, because that's just not how I was raised at all. Um, and so I think there were a lot more expectations as a kid, but then there was also none of this like, oh, you're a kid, so you wouldn't understand or you have to do things differently. Um, and so I always had this idea that, yeah, what I wanted to do, we could um, we could just do it. And then also having that freedom of my time. So I gave the, the example going through high school, um, but just there was never a, hey, you have to do this for X amount of time. Like... I remember, you know, we'd have a certain amount of school to do. And I grew up um, in the mountains outside of Boise where it would snow a lot. And so, like, in some days, you know, school would take, like, a regular amount of time. But if it had just snowed, like, 8 or 10 inches or a foot, and, you know, it would be like, oh, we want to go sledding in this, you know, amazing fresh snow. Mom would be like, yeah, when your school's done. And it turns out when you're focused and have this outcome that you want to achieve of, you know, fresh powder – um, you're super motivated. And so mom never said like, Hey, um, school will be done at one o'clock or something like that. She just said, when you're done, you're done. And so turns out you can get through, you know, and really learn it and retain a lot of information when you're like motivated and super focused. So I've had that all the way through of just, um, like that dedication to get straight to the result and not get caught up in the processes or whatever rules other people have. Um, and that, so there's all kinds of times where, you know, even today running ConvertKit where there's this whole process, uh, or, you know, it's like, oh, we have to do this or yeah, I don't know whether it's business or finance or operations, um, or anything else. And it's like, you have to do this. And I'm like, why? Well, and it turns out that, you know, everyone says you have to do it. And I just always ask, okay, well, if we didn't do that, what's the worst thing that would happen? And sometimes it's bad, like, okay, maybe if we didn't do that and the IRS audited us and like the fines would be a ton of money. Um, but other times it's like, okay, if we go all the way through the worst thing that would happen, I'm like, I don't even really care about that. That's not that bad. And so like I routinely just decide, no, it's not worth doing, um, even though everyone else says that you have to. Love that mentality. And that's been something that you've really mentored me on is that age doesn't have to be a deciding factor of what you achieve. Yep. And, you know, you're 27 and you've built a multi-million dollar company. Now let's backtrack to the beginning of ConvertKit. So you're working at that software company. You are also creating your own digital products, doing a little bit of freelance to my understanding. At what point were you like, I'm going to create my own software as a service company, which also stands for SaaS, for those of you who don't know that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, ConvertKit's probably like the 10th or 12th digital product that I've made. Maybe more. There's There's been a lot of them. Um, so as I was transitioning out of the software company uh, or the software startup, I'd been able to spend a bunch of time designing and building iPhone and iPad applications, which was really fun because I got to, you know, kind of immerse myself in this world. And then you know, I, I've always built stuff on the, on the side, like the, the side hustle is, um, really important to me. And it's something that we've made, you know, like in our company handbook at ConvertKit, it says instead of side hustles allowed, like allowed is crossed out. And then it says encouraged. 
um, because I find that that, you know, that learning that you get on the side and just all those experiences are so valuable. And so, um, my side hustle was building my own iPhone apps. Um, I built a few of them and then that provided a nice kind of stable balance to the rest of my income as I, as I quit the job. Um, but before that, you know, I, I tried to start a hosting company, a WordPress theme company, a local social network. Um, there's a bunch more, but, uh, you know, I had had a bunch of those, but the iPhone apps were the first kind of digital product that actually started to take off. Um, from there, uh, I got into writing, writing books. So I, the idea was I'd write a book on designing iPhone applications in order to, um, get more work as a freelance iOS designer. And then what surprised me, and this came through, you know, a lot of stuff that I learned from people like Chris Gillibo and, uh, um, another designer named Sasha Grief, um, is that I could actually make money from that book. So, you know, back then I thought that the book was just a means to build up an audience and then I could, you know, that like for, if you're going to build an iPhone application, do you want to hire some random designer or do you want to hire the designer who wrote the book on how to design iOS apps? And so that was my goal. I wanted to be the guy who wrote the book on it. Um, but it sold so well that I was like, okay, forget this. I'm just going to <laughs> teach people. I'm I'm going to stop doing the freelancing altogether. And so that that kind of just rolled from one book into the next. And a lot of that came about because, like, I didn't set out to write three books in a row, which is what I did. Um, and the the problem that I had early on was that. I would start all these projects and not finish them. And so I went about trying to create a system to help me finish projects because I was tired of being the person who would put something out there and say, I'm going to do this. And then like a friend would ask it about it like two months later and be like, Hey, so what happened with that? And you're like, yeah, well, I kind of lost interest after about like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I can oh, definitely you, relate to that. You've experienced that? <laughs> no, that's crazy. Yeah, I definitely experience that often. Yeah, so I did what I feel like most, you know, programmers do. And that's instead of writing a book, I built an iPhone app to help me write a book. Um, and that's where this little iPhone app called Commit came about. And all it was is you could build up a streak and say, hey, what are you going to do? You know, what's the habit you want to build? And so I said, I want to write a thousand words a day. Um you know, so I can finish this book. And so, you know, the app just goes great. And then every day it pops up and says, did you write a thousand words today? And so it keeps track of how many days in a row. And so what happened is by the time I published my first book, um, I was done with that and it was a bigger success than I could have ever hoped for. But then commit popped up the next day and said, are you going to write a thousand words today? And my first thought was no, like it's done, you know, but I was like, oh man, 82 days in a row. I don't want to break that streak. And so then I just wrote another book. Um, and that was a book on designing web applications. And then once that was done, I did the most meta thing possible and wrote a book about writing books um, called authority. But it really came about from that habit of um, like, or I guess it, it wasn't a drive to, you know, write three books or something like that, but it was instead, I'm going to create the habit or create the system of writing a thousand words a day. And then those three books were a byproduct of it. Right. And then f what I like about how you did that is you also didn't approach writing a book like a normal person would, you know, you were like, I'm going to write a book so that I can hit every, you know, bestseller list. You were writing a book to serve a specific audience and, and you just, didn't you either self publish or did you just yeah. release that digitally? Yeah. So I, um, all three books were just digital. And, uh, one of them authority I later brought to print. Um, but, uh, you know, keeping those, those books digital made the margins a lot higher. You know, I was able to really make a good amount of money off of a small audience with that. Whereas I think otherwise it, you know, if I'd gone traditionally, I would have had to sell really a lot of copies to make any kind of meaningful income from it. 
Right. And then once you, you know, you were blogging, selling books, releasing a few courses around those books, at what point did you decide I'm going to build ConvertKit? Yeah. So I actually turned my attention kind of back to software because I found that I'd spent all this time writing about software, um, but I didn't, I wasn't doing as much design work anymore. And I started to feel this disconnect and maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome of like, oh man, uh, I, like my skills are, are getting a little bit dull because I'm just teaching and I'm not creating myself. And I also wanted to get to some recurring revenue. So I love the, the book model and the launches, you know, I would do like $25,000 in a day, you know, when I would do this big book launch. Um, and then, you know, the next day would be like 10,000 and 3000, you know, and then it have kind of this long tail. Um, but then that launch driven model was kind of stressful. Cause what if I did a launch and it didn't work, you know, like there's a lot of pressure on that. So I wanted that recurring revenue to balance everything out. So that's why I was like, okay, let's create a SaaS product. And I actually didn't even know what I was going to build. Um, but I put it out there cause I've had this philosophy all along of working in public. And like the, one of the best ways to build an audience, uh, is to work in public. And so even though I was like, Hey, I don't know what I'm going to build, but, um, I'm launching this thing called the web app challenge. And my goal is to, uh, build, uh, I mean, it sounds crazy. Um, but, uh, to build a, a SaaS company, you know, SaaS product, um, in six months. Um, start to finish, you know, the day I posted, it was December 31st, uh, 2012. And I was saying like, okay, six months from today, the goal, the goal is to have 5,000 a month in recurring revenue. Um, and so then I really just launched into that of, okay, what am I going to build? And I tried out a bunch of different ideas, but one that I kept coming back to was this idea around email marketing. Cause what had surprised me a lot was that email was driving so many more of my book sales than I expected. I thought these new channels like uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and everything else would be driving sales and they were driving some engagement, but like the sales were coming from people on the email list. And so then I was spending all my time like hacking around MailChimp to try to implement these best practices. (laughs) And so then I thought, okay, maybe there's something here. Um, so I think it was like a week or 10 days into my web app challenge when I decided on the idea for ConvertKit, um, and just kind of dove in from there. Certainly didn't get to, uh, a thousand or 5,000 a month in revenue in six months. I think instead we were about 2000 a month in revenue. Um, but it still felt like a big success. Like I got back to building software and, and, uh, built something that a very small number of people thought was cool. Well, now a lot of people think it's cool and you have 28 employees. I am one of them and you're doing where we're doing about 9.1 million in annual revenue. And how does that feel? Like, how does it feel to take something that was just simply an idea and then turn it into a product and then make it profitable? Because I feel like that's what a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is they have a lot of ideas. They might even implement some and create products, but then how do you actually make money from those products? Yeah. Well, I mean, as far as how it feels, it feels pretty incredible. Like we just spent the the last week, uh, at our team retreat. And so, you know, as I'm sure all, all your, yeah, as all your listeners know, I'm sure, you know, we're a remote company. And so like these times twice a year where we get to spend a week all crammed into, a giant house that starts to feel really small when you stick 28 people in it. They're just really, really special. And so the the things that we've built as a team and as a company, and, and I think the culture that we've built, um, and then especially the product, like if you look out to the impact that it's made on so many different creators lives, like it it feels really, really special. And I'm not sure if uh, any other way to describe it. So a big portion of, I feel like your mission in life is to teach everything you know. And you are someone that emulates you know, service. Why is that so important to you? And how do you always bring it back to, are we serving our audience? Are we serving our customers? Yeah, so teach everything you know comes from this idea of um, like 
even just from a practical level, like forget being altruistic or helping people or any of that. Like if we were going to be a hundred percent selfish, and it's just like, okay, I want to build an audience. How do you do that? You know? And, and actually the easiest way to do that is to, um, to teach and share. And so I think a lot of people have this fear around teaching that they're like, well, who am I to, uh, to teach, whether it's business or programming or knitting or anything else, you know, who am I to, to teach? Why should someone listen to me? Um, I'm not an expert. And what they're missing out on is the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who know more than you do and, and who actually are experts, but often they don't have the ability to connect with a beginner in a way that you do. So if you've just picked up this brand new skill, you know, um, maybe you went through like the first couple lessons of a programming language and you figured it out and you're like a week into learning this new thing. There's things that you got stuck on and you got frustrated with and you overcame that that expert who's been doing it for 10 years can't even relate to. They're like, wait, what? You got stuck on that? And so there's this total disconnect between the expert and the beginner. And as someone going through the journey, who's maybe two, three steps ahead of the beginner, uh, they can actually relate to it and they can speak on their level. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, I can tell you about what I went through. I went through that, you know, this is how I overcame it. And so you can connect with them in a way that, uh, the expert just can't. And the other thing that people miss out on is they think that like someone, you know, there's some expert out there that like we look at them and someone at some point like anointed them to become an expert. And like, ah, you have reached the level of knowledge. Now you are an expert. And that's just not the case at all. Like those people, um, they don't teach because they're experts. They're experts because they teach. Like we get the order backwards. And so if you just set out teaching everything you know and you say, hey, this is what I learned about design and I want to share it. This is what I learned about uh, building a company. Hope that helps. You know, um, a couple days ago or actually today, a podcast episode came out that was like, Hey, this is everything I know about company culture and what we've done at ConvertKit. And, um, like I'm by no means an expert in company culture, but we just spent the last, you know, uh, really the last year, but probably the most last six months really intentionally crafting a company culture that we're really proud of. And so it's like, okay, even though like I don't make a business out of teaching company culture in any way, hopefully it can help someone. And so through that idea of teach everything, you know, then we just create these byproducts and, you know, do a whole podcast episode just on that. And the result of it is that it's the best way to build an audience. And so we have these three, I don't even know what to call them. Maybe mantras at ConvertKit. Does that sound right? Yeah, um, mantras. I like that. And those are uh, teach everything, you know, create every day and work in public. And it's basically like if you do those three things, you can guarantee uh, you can guarantee building an audience and you know, the create every day goes back to like writing a thousand words a day. I think so many people are having, uh, this, this trouble, like getting started or getting off the ground or, you know, they're like, Oh, my, my blog just isn't working. And I'm like, okay, well, how long have you been blogging? And they're like, well, I've been doing it for two months. (laughs) And it's like, okay, like, let's maybe have a little longer time horizon. Or they're like, yeah, I've been, I've been blogging for two years. And then you find out that they've been doing it like once a month, you know, or every six weeks. And so if you combine these three ideas, um, I don't know, you get, you get powerful results. So like I built my whole audience writing a thousand words a day, every day for 650 days in a row. And so it's like, if you do that, you're going to get some pretty awesome results. And then the work in public and teach everything, you know, kind of take care of what to, uh, what to write about. I love that philosophy. Jumping back to that person who is like thirsty for results, who's been blogging for two months or two years, and they're kind of at that crossroads of, do I continue or do I stop? And you actually have a really interesting blog that I, that I love reading every time I'm at this decision of about shutting down or doubling down. And kind of making the right move in the direction that's going to make, make you the most successful in that area. Can you share your philosophy on, on that, on shutting down or doubling down? Yeah. So I think the first problem that you run into here is like a survivorship 
bias of some kind, right? Because we have all these examples of, of a company that wasn't doing well, you know, is either failing or um, struggling and then the founder decides to double down on it and that's this amazing success, right? Um, but there are plenty of times that you should shut something down. Like it's not working, you should give up. And um, so I kind of made this framework as I was trying to decide whether to shut down ConvertKit or double down on it, which might sound like a surprise because we just talked about like, oh, ConvertKit's doing $9 million a year in revenue. Um, how is that ever a question? But really, like if you draw that line from, you know, we talked about when it was doing 2000 a month in revenue to today, it's like mostly flat and declining for, you know, another year and a half before I came to this decision point. Um, so the framework is really just two simple questions. The first question is, do you still want this as much today as you did on the day that you started? And it's kind of like a, you know, look in, look inside. And do you really want it? Because what happens is we all have these ideas of like, oh, it would be amazing if I could do this. But then after a while, that enthusiasm wanes and you kind of decide to move on to other things. And that's totally fine. So you want to ask, like, don't just persevere into something that you don't want. And so for ConvertKit, it was like, I had a successful business doing, you know, selling books and courses and everything through the blog. And so it's like, do I still want to be the CEO of a software company as much today as I did a year and a half ago when I started ConvertKit? And for me, the answer was yes, I still want it. It's like, okay, cool. Proceed to question two. And... (laughs) And question two is just quite simply, have you given this every possible chance to succeed? Because if you have, right, if you still really want this and you've given it every possible chance to succeed, you're truly your best effort, then like there's something wrong. Either the idea isn't right, you're not the right person to bring it to market, you know, the timing isn't right. Like there's all kinds of reasons that businesses fail. And if you really feel like you've given it your best shot and it hasn't worked, then you should shut it down. You should move on to something else. But for me, I looked at that and said, no, I don't think I have. I've worked on it part-time, not even super consistently at times. Um, I have more ideas that I haven't tried yet. And I know that if I don't work on this now, I'm always going to look back years from now and go, I wonder if I could have made that work. And so for me, there was this big disconnect. Here I am saying, I really want this. Like, I truly want this just as much now as years ago when I started. But my effort doesn't match that. And so I wasn't being true to myself in that. And so when I realized those things, I knew that I had to give it one more shot that was truly my best effort. So that if it failed, I could look back and say, yeah, like that didn't work but at least I know for sure that it didn't work and not that it didn't work because I half-assed it or something. Um, And I just needed that one way or another. uh, I needed that certainty and then, you know, ended up doubling down on ConvertKit and instead of shutting it down. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty glad that that's the route that I took. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm pretty glad that uh, you chose to keep it up and going. (laughs) It's been a huge life changer for me. And I remember whenever I first met you, we were out at a conference and I had never actually heard of ConvertKit at that point in time. And I was using MailChimp for my business, but I was building marketing campaigns inside of Infusionsoft. And you're like, yeah, I built this this tool called ConvertKit. And it's kind of like MailChimp and Infusionsoft combined. You've got automation, but you have simplicity. And I remember I sat down and I signed up right then and there. And I had no idea at that point in time that I was going to be working at ConvertKit. And I, I love that story. Um, you brought up earlier the the importance of a side hustle. And you know, you know, I'm a side hustler. This is my podcast. This is my side hustle. I would love to hear your mentality on side hustles and why they are important and how sometimes there's this tension to take a side hustle full time whenever you're really not meant to. And sometimes a side hustle is just supposed to be a side hustle. Right. Yeah. So first I think like, I guess another core tenant that I haven't, uh, been able to put into a succinct mantra is just this idea of always learning and, you know, always trying new things and always experimenting. And so that's something that a side hustle is fantastic for, right? Because as 
as ConvertKit gets bigger, we can't just throw out and try all these totally random ideas. Or like there's other people out there who are better skilled in the company to do it. You know? So even if you know, we want to become better designers, programmers, copywriters, whatever. Like there's someone else on the team who's better equipped to do that. And the right business decision is to have them, have them do it. Um, and I, like, I have the strong desire to be a jack of all trades, um, master of many. Um, and I think that anyone who's like master of none, is just like, yeah, you're just using it as a lazy cop out, like get better at your work. Um, and so the side hustle is the perfect time to practice that. So for the longest time, I had kind of this three-pillared approach that um, I always took to product creation, where I wanted to be equally good at design, development, and marketing. Because I was saying, okay, you know, my, my, I guess, core career is as a designer. But what's the point in being a designer if you can't build it? You know, like um, static wireframes are interfaces aren't any good. And so even if a developer makes something terrible, at least it works. Um, and then, so if I have these design and development skill sets, like what's the point of that if I don't know how to get it in the hands of people and actually market, market it and sell it. And so I'd kind of work between these three ideas, um, and try to refine each of those skill sets. I eventually let go of the development one because, um, it was really hard to keep up those skills. And, you know, now we have eight amazing engineers. Um, but uh, in building that up, the side hustle became the perfect place to practice. Because if you're building an iPhone app that's probably only going to be used by a couple hundred people, it doesn't matter that it's programmed perfectly. Like, you can make it good enough. And I don't know, and all these other things, like writing started as a side hustle for me, Um I've just always had a side hustle. Um, I kind of still have a side hustle now, I guess. What's your What's your side hustle now? Uh, probably my vlog. Um, right, right. So, yeah, I'm always trying to pick something that I experiment with. Um, and, you know, I think video is fun. And so I started a vlog and uh, I'm only like 13 episodes into it, but. I have another 10 or 12 recorded that I need to get edited and, and put up, but it's always this opportunity to say, I don't know what's something cool and new that's out there that I'd love to learn and practice with. And cause the stakes are so low, right? Cause it's on the side. Now I do have this fear that it's like a, it's definitely a fear. Um, but like a positive fear, um, a happy fear, you know, as we encourage <laughs> side projects within the company, like what happens as these amazing people level up their skills and then, you know, if it ends up being a crazy success and they end up going out on their own, like it's one of those things where you have to be, uh, there'd be this huge feeling of like losing out on someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, uh, like the core idea of, of ConvertKit and the core mission is to help creators earn a living and, you know, to help these creators see success. And so that applies to all of the, all of the amazing creators who work at ConvertKit as well. And so, you know, if success as a creator means growing beyond uh, the ConvertKit team, then, you know, like we absolutely support that, even though it's like at the time it's going to be super painful. Um, <laughs> right. And I think that's what makes you such an incredible leader is because of your, you know, you're there to really encourage and you're there to nurture people's gifts. And I think that's something about you that that I admire and try to do more of is always nurturing other people and encouraging the gifts of other people. And there's a, there's a huge aspect of your whole life that is rooted in a lot of vulnerability and a lot of transparency. And I think I know that that's one of the the key things that makes you so successful. And some of the best creative entrepreneurs are aware of themselves, their strengths and their weaknesses, and they're able to get vulnerable with people that they lead and their audience. So how has vulnerability and self-awareness played a part in your journey? Yeah. Because you know, you know that vulnerability is like such a, a big deal to me. And I love how you, you exude that in different areas of your life. I have never cried in front of the company before. 
ever. No, me neither. <laughs> me neither. I've never cried on on camera during his Monday meeting on Zoom. I've never done that. Yeah, it's definitely not happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's sarcasm. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, vulnerability is something that it's a it's such an important aspect to like this idea of teach everything you know that I think a lot of people miss out on because people aren't just looking for facts. They're looking to, to connect and you can't really connect with someone unless they're vulnerable and you can't really trust someone who isn't vulnerable. And so much of the company culture that we try to try to build, you know, comes down to trust and it comes down to vulnerability. <laughs> we did this session, you know, as you know, you were there at yeah. <laughs> the, at the team retreat. Um, just a few days ago and uh we did an unsolicited feedback and you know across teams where the you know the marketing team or the sales team or engineering team would sit there and the whole company would talk about them as if they weren't there and give them you know all the things that they wish they knew or wish they would change and you know all that feedback but we we kicked it off with uh you know, unsolicited feedback for the CEO, which was an interesting experience of, you know, <laughs> like I had 27 people all sitting there uh, talking about me as if I wasn't there and there were great things and there's a lot of things I need to work on. But one of the positive things that came out of that is uh, one, one person on our team said that um, she really liked how I modeled what it was like to be your full, like your complete self at work. And so I've really tried to not separate those things and not tried to put on a front of any kind um, or pretend to, you know, like not feel things that I do or um, I don't know, like there's just this open and honesty and vulnerability that I think has made me a better leader, even when like I'm being vulnerable about, about things where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, you know? Um, and probably the biggest thing that's helped me work like get to that point where I'm able to um, is like regular consistent counseling. And so I think that's something that we in the entrepreneurial circles, we probably don't talk about as much as we should. Cause once I started talking about it, you know, maybe a year ago or so I, I published something on my blog about like, you know, how I've been going to counseling regularly and the impact that it had on me. Um, you know, then I had a whole bunch of people be, like reach out and be like, Oh, me too. Best decision I ever made. Like, you know, truly life changing to every week or every couple of weeks, like just talk through why you do what you do, why you think what you think, you know, and all of that. But it's just not something that comes up very much. And it's, I'd say it's that probably a really good first step to building that vulnerability because you gain so much more confidence in yourself and so much more insight in yourself. Um, and it's easier to be vulnerable, you know, when you practice it in those ways. So I don't know. I think dealing with like that fear and vulnerability and all that kind of thing. Um, my recommendation would be go to counseling. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been in therapy, I think since I was about 15 and I, I think stretching that, that vulnerability muscle from such a young age for the last nine, 10 years has allowed me to connect with people and be really empathetic and compassionate and be able to connect. And that's something that you're incredible at. And I, I never really thought about it that way. I never thought about counseling kind of being the first step, but that's so true. Yeah. And I hope that more people will, you know, give it a try and then send me an email and let me know how it goes. It might be terrible. You know, you might need to rotate between, a few counselors before you find someone that you connect with. But um, just that, like we spend so much time stuck in our own thoughts and our own limiting beliefs and everything else that, you know, if you just dedicate a couple hours a month to like helping to dig yourself out of that, uh, I think you'll see a pretty big payoff from it. Oh, I love, I just love talking to you. <laughs> Can we just turn Monday meetings into ask Nathan Berry questions? Sure. Yeah, all day? and we'll just make it a live podcast. How's that sound? That sounds like great. I really think that this could be something, really something successful. <laughs> It'll be good. We actually, that was probably one of my favorite moments from the retreat was um, how it was probably like 1030 at night. And we, we all had glasses of wine or a, a drink of choice standing out on the deck at night and just... I think 
yeah, people were just asking questions or throwing out ideas and it, and it was just like, I don't know, five or six of us. And it, it was really special. Yeah. I, I love that you have focused on building a remote company and I know that's been a big, a big aspect of the way you do business is online. Why was it important for you to build a remote company and how do you feel like that plays into like your personal laptop lifestyle? Yeah. So, um, remote was always important to me for two reasons. One and one, I love to travel. You know, like at its core, I just like to have the freedom and flexibility to, to, you know, work from Thailand for a month or, you know, do anything like that. Um, but two, and this one is actually just as important is I wanted to be judged based on the quality and quantity of my work. Um, not how much time I spent sitting in a chair. Mm -hmm. Like if you've ever had a job in an office with like a little, a little dose of office politics, then you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to be the first to leave on a Friday, but like once so-and-so leaves, as long as that's after about five 15, I can head out. I'm out of here. <laughs> so I don't actually need to do any work between now and then, but I just need to make sure that I leave after they do. Um, if you've ever, ever been a part of that, <laughs> like it sucks. And I remember the last company that I worked at years ago, I just remember like a bunch of the, designers and, and developers there like standing around the pool table complaining about how they didn't get paid enough. And it was like such a weird culture. Cause I was like, I don't know that we actually even do any work. You know, I had this weird thing of like feeling super weird about it, but then being a part of that culture in some way, there was a moment when I realized like, wow, if I really focus, I can get more done in three hours than these other people are getting done in an entire eight hour day. And actually it wasn't an eight hour day. They were just putting in like 10 hour days, but um, because it was such a toxic culture, they, you know, would put in all this extra time for the idea of putting in extra time and being perceived as working hard. And so I was like, look, screw this. If I get great work done, I want to be able to close my computer and walk away. And some days it's going to take me 10 hours. Other days it's going to take me like four hours. And I just want that freedom and flexibility. And if you go all the way back to my time as a homeschooled kid, I, uh, you know, I want to be able, I guess two things from that. I want to be judged based on the, the work, not the hours, you know, and so purely the results. Um, and if I get it done quickly, like, you know, the kid version of me would like go sledding. The adult version of me will just go snowboarding. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I want to get my work done and then move on to the next thing. But then the other thing is, I want to have the flexibility to go do things when everyone else is at work. So like, I want to go paddleboarding on the lake when, uh, it's like two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, or like, or going skiing when like on a Monday morning, well, not a Monday morning, we have our team meetings, maybe a Tuesday morning. Um, and so that like laptop lifestyle, that remote work, uh, enables it because, so long as I show up to the important things throughout the week and so long as I get the work done that I need to to move the company forward, nobody cares about when or how I do it. And uh, that's just how I want to work. And I am pretty happy that we found like a, you know, a small band of other people who only want to be judged based on the quality and output of, you know, that they produce and uh, uh, they want that freedom. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to work for a remote company, kind of flipping that a little bit, is because I created a podcast called The Laptop Lifestyle about this type of lifestyle that we are living at ConvertKit and being able to travel and being able to experience things unlike that corporate type of environment. And that's been, honestly, it's been a complete life changer to me. And I'm just grateful that you wanted to create that company so I could work at it. Yeah. Um, Though I think I, if we talk about uh, some of that, there are definitely disadvantages to it. Because like often the times that I create my most, most meaningful work is when I'm at home, at my desk, with my 27-inch monitor, like in the perfect environment, and then I can really create something. So I think we also have to be honest with everyone that like it's hard to do meaningful like really serious work on the road at the level that, you know, you're able to do in your perfectly crafted environment at home. 
That's a really good point. And even working remote sometimes comes with with loneliness and, you know, you have to work more at company culture and you have to work more at collaboration. And if you're a solopreneur and you work remote or I guess you work on your own, um, always be open to collaborating with other people in different industries and things like that, because that's really important to having that human connection because you can get really siloed off even working for a remote company or working on your own, you can put yourself in a box and put yourself in a silo and then you're not really able to create as I think as it more incredible work whenever you're able to connect and collaborate with other people. This has been so much fun. I have one more question for you and then I think we have a meeting that we have to get to. It is true. Um, before I ask my last question, I want you to tell people where they can find you online. Where can they find your vlog or look at ConvertKit or, you know, go to your blog? Yeah. So basically just Nathan Berry everywhere. So NathanBerry.com, uh, YouTube.com slash Nathan Berry, you know, Twitter, Instagram, it's all the same though. On Instagram, all you'll see is pictures of my kids. Um, so if you're looking for like inspirational content, you know, maybe go to the vlog or or the blog. Yeah. And then ConvertKit is ConvertKit.com. I always like to plug uh, Tradecraft, which is this amazing publication that, you know, our marketing team puts a ton of effort into on, you know, how to build an online business and uh, all of that. And so it's just ConvertKit.com slash blog, but uh, that's something special. So I like to always talk about it. And I'll link that up in the show notes for everybody too. Nathan, you have been such a mentor to me in the last year, and it has been honestly one of the the biggest gifts of my life to work alongside you and to run towards awesome goals and and really create meaningful work for people. Um, And we get to live a laptop lifestyle while we do it. Absolutely. And so my last question I ask every guest is, what does the laptop lifestyle mean to you? Ooh, okay. So I think it at its core, it means being like entirely focused on the quality of the work rather than, um, you know, when or where or how it happens. And then like, I guess the byproducts of that are like at some point during the interview, you probably heard like my five-year-old not being super happy about something. And so, you know, uh, that's cause I'm at home, you know, and, uh, I just see like all these amazing benefits and of being able to be around for these things. And, and, uh, yeah, it's what what comes from the laptop lifestyle. Whether it's working for a month in Thailand or um, taking a last minute trip somewhere just because flights were cheap or we had the miles, but or like what it means most commonly is that you know I get to take a break in the middle of the day and my kids are there and uh, just get to spend more time with them at the time that's kind of right for them. So yeah, those are the those are the things that I love about the laptop lifestyle. 